On Sex Positive Me, we explore all aspects of sex and relationships, ranging from fetishes and BDSM to ethical non-monogamy and LGBTQ issues. Sex Positive Me destigmatizes sexual practices and relationships while reconciling reality with myth and misconceptions. Our goal is to educate, entertain, and be advocates of sexual freedom. And now here's your hosts, Angelique and John Luna. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Sex Positive Me with your hostess with the mostest, Angelique Luna, and my husband who's trying to bail me out from trouble because, again, you know, I'm good at stirring it, John C. Luna. You are excellent at stirring it. (laughs) We need some laughter there because this whole month has been a fun educational month for us uh, with sexual abuse. It's been rough at times. It's been very rough, but you know, because it's Sexual Abuse Awareness Month and Child Abuse Awareness Month. And uh, as many of you know, our backstory, we do have a child sex abuse survivor who I spent the day yesterday and ended up to be one big emotional roller coaster and meltdown because she still is hung up on the fact that it was my fault that I didn't know about the abuse and trying to remind her that, look, I didn't know. They hit it so well that I tried my very best to protect her, but when you have the law hold your hands and have these child custody cases says, well, you have to do this. If not your violation of child custodies and they turn around and they use like um, accuse you because I was accused of child abuse that I had DCF investigated on me before the sexual abuse was even discovered on the other side. And what you need to understand is there are expert predators, repeat predators that know the system more than the victims. So they know how to work it. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes the laws doesn't catch up with it. And they're written in a way that they protect the predators more than the victims. And that's why I did reach out to Catherine Marsh of the co-founder of the Right Response Consulting, um, career prosecutor of 17 years. And she specializes in this, I hate to say market, but this arena, arena, I mean, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, you uh, right response consulting. We just had a little talk about COVID made it happen, but tell us how, how did it start? What was the drive for all this? Where was the, the, the napkin moment? That's right. So my partner Melissa Hotmeyer and I, it, we are the chief and assistant chiefs of the Special Victims Unit in a pretty large jurisdiction, and so our day to day work is sexual assault, child sex abuse, child exploitation, you know, domestic violence and physical child abuse. And we were talking when the pandemic first hit and jury trials were put on hold and we could actually have a time to talk about what do we want to see? What goals do we want to set for the unit for ourselves? And we said, you know, so often it's, we get the file, we get the case after the worst has happened to the family. And you know, we talk to survivors, we talk to their family. And a lot of times they're like, I didn't know the warning signs. I didn't know that this behavior was something I maybe should have asked a question about. I didn't know what resources were available to me. And we said, we want to do something to reduce the new cases and the files that are coming into our unit. Ultimate goal, we'd love to put ourselves and all special victims prosecutors across the country out of business. 
But we said, you know, we, we need to do more. And part of it is we do believe that education is prevention. And so we founded Right Response Consulting, one, to do education and through No Gray Zone podcast to really focus on that. But then the other thing we know we've learned through our survivors and their family is there has been a shortage of trauma-informed criminal care. So shortage in how to do a proper trauma-informed, trauma-centric investigation on law enforcement side or for how for prosecutors to properly handle trauma cases. And so we wanted to make sure we could establish a whole training profile on this to help survivors and their families. So when the worst happens, they're not re-traumatized by the system. Yes, that was very difficult for me with the system and trying to deal with them and how they handled certain ways. I mean, luckily we're here in Florida. So the local county sheriff, they, they were trying to do their very best to help us out. Um, I think my distaste in regards to the law came with the state attorney's office and just the way they just churned through the cases and tried to plead them out as quickly as possible. And as I was saying in our case, they accepted the plea deal. Unfortunately, it was a plea deal for Lewd and Lascivious Act for a minor under 16, which gives them seven to 15 years jail time when it should have been Lewd and Lascivious Act on the minor under 12, which should have gave them 25 years to life. Big difference. And I didn't know, and I trusted the legal system and it burns so bad. So I'm grateful that you created resources like that to give people an idea where to get some help. Absolutely. And it, I mean, it's hard, you know, when on the prosecution side, our job is to seek justice. And that means we are to find the most just result possible. And we do have to consider all components of the community, the survivor, even we have to look at the criminal defendant and coming up with that just result. But part of that is we start every case requires honesty. You know, the first time I talk to a survivor or their family, you know, I say the same thing. I'm going to be honest with you from this point to the next point. I'm going to tell you the good, the bad, the ugly. There may be days you hate me. There may be days you love me, but you're going to know what's going on throughout the entire process. I'm not going to hide anything from you. And I think as prosecutors, we have a duty to discuss plea offers with our survivors. Now, prosecutors have the ultimate decision of, of making that plea offer, but the survivor, especially in sexual assault cases where control has been taken from them, it is so important for them to have control back in some ways and in the process. And so you need to understand what's the difference between under 16 versus under 12. It's huge. In my jurisdiction, the difference is, is it a crime of violence? You know, for us, it's a crime of violence if the victim's under 12, which means they have to serve at least 50% of their sentence before they're eligible for parole. Over the age of 12, it's not a crime of violence, and they only have to serve a quarter of their sentence before they're eligible for parole. That's huge, especially if we're talking about truth in sentencing, for a victim to know what the sentencing range is, if we're not telling them, oh, by the way, if we do it for under 12, it's this, but if we give them the other one, it's not, you know, it's, it's one thing if you had had that knowledge and been able to say, I don't want my child to testify. I do want to resolve it. I want them to go to prison and I'm willing to compromise on this 
so that my child doesn't testify. But at least your voice would have been heard or you could have had or your child could have had some say in that process too. Yes, we didn't even have the conversation. They just made the deal. They didn't give us options. They didn't even say we didn't want to put her through trial. They just, again, but that was back in 2008, 2009. So that's I, just heartbreaking. Victims' rights predate that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why I'm so happy with changes and things and laws eventually catching up. But it, it, it is, wow, it, you know, night and day, how the education, how the internet has made this possible because a lot of the predators, you know, a good majority of what we've discovered when we were going through our healing is they're familiar. They're their family member or a close friend of the family. It's not stranger danger. So nope. who is your audience or your clients that could utilize your services? Well, so the audience for the podcast, we kind of just want it to be everyone. In a lot of ways, we say we're educating potential jurors, right? We need to know that jurors who are coming in and sitting on that jury have a better understanding of everything that goes into a sexual assault case. There's a lot of sexual assault rape myths out there with regard to, you know, there's the rape myth that there's so many false reports. Well, every study that's been done in recent times shows that false reporting percentage for sexual assaults and rapes are about the exact same as any other crime of violence. They're all hover between four to five percent. Yet we have this huge misconception in our country, right? That if somebody reports a sexual assault, we, we start with doubt first as opposed to belief. You never ask a burglary victim who's like, oh my goodness, my house was broken into. They took my TV. They took my you know, cell phone. Well, did you really have a TV? That's, that's <laughs> never how we start that. But when we start with sexual assault cases, it's, well, are you sure you didn't consent? Or could they have misunderstood something? Or why were you there to begin with? You, you, we just treat the victims completely differently. And we want to make sure that potential jurors stop and think about that before they're, you know, making a decision in these kinds of cases. We also want to reach parents. Melissa and I are parents of young kids ourselves. I have three boys. She has two girls. And, you know, we know it. You got to start talking to your kids much earlier than you ever think you should be talking to your children. And so for the podcast, you know, those were some of our goals on that. And for on the consulting training side, we really reach out to law enforcement, to school boards, to universities, to really work on that trauma-informed approach to these kinds of complaints. Yeah, I think that's like the key word, trauma-informed, because people need to understand, you know, it's like, you, you can't just assume that they're lying because they're coming forward and saying, and people don't realize, how much strength and courage it says to even admit that something so traumatic has happened to you. Well, I, I've talked with many survivors that for years didn't know it. They didn't admit that it was abuse. Absolutely. It just kind of got buried down and said, well, it happened. And, you know, it's a bad experience. Just don't think about it. Like, you know, a bad date, just get rid of it. But it doesn't go away. It, it, it just festers, unfortunately. Absolutely. What, what you said right there, we hear all the time, especially when survivors come to us later. We are very fortunate. I'm in a jurisdiction that has no statute of limitations for any felony. So we oh, wonderful. get sexual assault complaints from 15, 20 years ago and work on those, which is good 
to be able, if a survivor wants to come forward then to know their voice can still be heard. But a lot of times what you said is they didn't even know if it would necessarily be a crime or abuse or assault, you know, at the time. I think if part of it is we fail in our country, in our school systems, in our legal systems, in just talking about consent in a uniform way. Everybody has their own definition of consent, which I think feeds part of this problem because it's, it's you know, we, we, we have the name no gray zone because we say consent should not be a gray zone, but it is because everybody has their own definition for it. And we're not all coming to terms with not even, each state treats it different, even different courts interpret it different. And I think podcasts like yours with Sex Positive Me and just having the conversation and let's talk about consent, let's talk about healthy relationships will help get us to that change we need. I know the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom is a huge advocate in trying to change the laws to have consent um, mandatory as one, uniformed. Yes, that, that's the correct word. Uniform across the states, because you're right. There is, you know, it's like interpretive dancing. Yeah, there is no current. Um, well, there's obviously a current definition of what murder is. Someone's dead. They've been murdered. But there is no current uh, definition going across 50 states or the federal government to say what is consent. So it's hard. I'm guessing it's going to be hard to prosecute when, when you're trying to hit something that is almost ethereal. Absolutely. I mean, so for example, we would think it's a no brainer that if somebody is under the influence, they're incapacitated, they're passed out, we would think that that automatically means they can't consent, right? But there was just a court case last month that shocked everybody in my unit where an appeal court in another state overturned a rape conviction saying that victim was voluntarily incapacitated because they because they got themselves drunk and therefore it's not rape. And and you know, I just sit here and go, how are we in 2021? And we're having some judges tell us, well, she voluntarily got drunk, so it's not rape because it's almost an implied consent. I almost feel like there's still an element, and I hate to use this term of the old boys club. And this opinion from going back 40, 50 years where, again, it was a very patriarchal run um, society and it was on the victim, especially if it was a woman, to prove it. And there was almost no uh, um, cases where the man was the victim because it, we had too much of a macho society of, well, if you were sexually assaulted, just enjoy it. And that's not the case. Absolutely. We were talking about that just today. Uh, actually, I was talking with a coworker with regard to inherent biases. And I was saying how when I have a female sex offender, so I have a adult woman who has sexually offended a juvenile male. When I go in before the court or the judge, almost every single time, they're going to get a much lighter sentence than if I have a man standing there with a sexual assault on a juvenile female in part, right? Because of the concept of, well, that teenage boy probably wanted it, or it's not that bad because the victim was a teenage boy. So we have that kind of how we look at it. But then we do as just a culture with regard to sexual assault, 
in the good old boy club of, well, did she really say no? Or maybe she, maybe she secretly wanted to, you know, or what do I hear all the time is it was morning after regret. That's why she's saying it's a sexual assault now. And those are the defenses that get played out in the courtroom all the time. And that's the thing. People just do not understand the double standards of how people or criminals, predators, whatever you want to call them, you know, get treated. And I appreciate you using the language juvenile instead of underage. That is like a vocabulary word that really drives me insane that why do you say like, underage or young adult or what, what's the other one that they always say with the because uh, uh, Matt Skates is going through that right now. Yeah. Right. When, you know, because they're a child. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when when they say what, 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 what are some of my favorites from the media? It appeared to be a consensual relationship with an underage female. Exactly. It, one, you cannot have a consensual relationship with a minor. By law, there can be no consent. So let's change the verbiage, but that's part of it. We've already made this decision that it was a consensual relationship. It's only troubling because they're underage versus let's talk about the fact that they are exploiting a minor child. And that's how we need to look at this. Well, at that age, children are looking to adults to define the definition of what a relationship even is. It's not like you're born knowing what a relationship is. We look at our parents, we look at our brothers and sisters and our aunts and uncles and the people around us to define how we're going to establish our relationships. And if we're brought into there about, into that situation of being abused, unfortunately, you know, the child doesn't know. They don't have the the skills for that type of situation because it, it brings in, Sex is not only just a physical act and a physical abuse, it's a mental abuse that lasts with that victim for years to come. And emotional. The emotional part is because um, in our situation, she was groomed. So for her, that was love. That Absolutely. that sexual abuse was considered love. That's how they, they knew. And we know as adults that that's wrong. You don't do that with a child, let alone an infant. Right. No, you're, you're a hundred percent right. And I I think actually both of you said it at the beginning of this, when we look specifically at child sexual abusers, they're master manipulators. They are going to groom. They're going to establish a pattern of behavior first to make sure that their victim doesn't talk about it. So they're going to start that behavior first. They're also going to do exactly what you said. It's the mind games, the mental torture of this is how you show me love. And it creates all kinds of confusion later as the child's growing up with the concepts of I've been told this is how I show love. And this is how if I truly love somebody, I do demonstrate sexually. And it makes our children who have been groomed to that concept of this is how you show love to engage in sexual relationships outside of the abuse oftentimes much earlier. We also have to recognize, and I think it's it's a hard concept for a lot of people that we see as jurors or people who have never been touched by sexual assault with somebody, you know, that they know or don't, they've just never encountered anybody who's been a victim of sexual assault. 
it's a hard concept for them to understand that a child can still feel pleasure from sexual abuse. And because to them, one, they've been groomed for this. Two, it hasn't necessarily been told this is wrong and the body will react. And so it's hard for jurors or other people to understand. And then when our children grow up and they go, oh my goodness, this felt good to me. There must be something wrong with me. It adds additional trauma to that child. And I think it's part of that healing process to make sure they know that 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 doesn't mean you wanted it. It doesn't mean you're to blame for it. It's it's a natural body reaction to it. Just like we got to educate jurors because, you know, we'll, we'll hear criminal defendants be, I don't want to be too graphic, but um, well, she was wet. So she must've liked it. And it's like, that that doesn't mean this is okay. And it doesn't mean this isn't a crime. That That's a natural body reaction that can occur. Well, one of the things I'll bring up that came out recently was the Olympic doctor who okay. was abusing. Um, and again, Olympians start young. Olympians are trained at 12 and you know 13. They're training for this. So his abuse uh, spanned hundreds of women. And they really, I, they haven't even started the trial yet, I don't believe. but uh, Or they're in the trial. No, um, if you're talking Nasser, he, he did end up playing. He did? Yeah. Okay. But, or are you talking the one that came after? Because, well, well there's a couple of those Olympic coaches. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> but like, regardless, when you're going up against someone with a reputation like that, where, you know, he's, he's a high member of the community, he's a respected doctor, it's that it, it all lends to, well, for the victim to go, if I speak up, I'm going against all of that. And of course, as a trained predator, though they set themselves up in that situation where when a victim comes out, it will be disbelieved because they've done this and this. And I can hear people saying, oh, well, he did so much for charity. He did so much for this. How could he do this? But that is the, the aura they form to go ahead. That's the disguise they wear. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Oh, 100%. Look what Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein... Uh, the Penn State coach. I mean, it, when you look at serial predators, how many of them have held those positions in the community? Because it's an it's an insulated defense built in, right? I, I'm well trusted. I'm well loved. Nobody will believe you. And I think that's that's exactly part of the problem. Now, the good news is, as you said, you know, the internet has helped. Different things have helped. We've got some great tech companies that have come along to help as well. There's one that we love and it's called Jado and it's a, it's a trauma-centered app. And it was specifically designed so that victims could make a report. It, it's an anonymous encrypted report into the app. So if they don't wanna go to law enforcement or anything yet, they can just make this report on this app and they can put in anything they know about their abuser. So maybe they know their social media handle. Maybe they know their cell phone number. Maybe they have a picture of them. And the app will make a hash of whatever information they have, and it'll automatically match it to any other victims with this same predator. And then these victims can be told, hey, there have been two others, 10 others, 100 others who have made the report, would you like to connect? Which would allow victims to come together in mass and make a report and have that kind of security around them. 
oh that's that's, awesome that's genius yeah isn't it and i mean and that came out of so we we love jada we talk about them all the time ryan who was the founder he came to it because when he was in high school one of his friends was sexually abused and they found out that there were several of them and how could all this, this has happened and nobody knew. And so they wanted to create a way so that victims could make this and connect to each other. And so they created this whole platform so that victims could come together. That's fantastic. I need them on the show. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I know most of the stuff we've talked about so far has been somewhat dark, we'll say. And I know your company is just still new, um, still young. Do you have any good success stories without violating any consent, of course, but any, any good stories that you can share with us? You know, I, I think, by the way, just anytime we get to talk about it is a, is a success story because somebody's listening and somebody's mind will be changed about sexual assault. But I will say, I think one of the best ones was we had finished up a, a whole trauma-informed investigation and prosecution training for an organization. And, and we go through how with trauma, you know, brain biology is different, how victims store memory is different. You can't interview a victim who has suffered the trauma the same way you might interview another. You can't do linear. You've got to be willing to ask questions in a different way, rely on sensory questions, different things, because the victim just can't answer questions the way you would an eyewitness or something like that. And we'd gone through this whole thing. And a week or two later, that one of the detectives emailed us and said, I have to tell you, we went back and we did an interview on a sexual assault survivor where we had done the interview and we had said, there's no crime here, or we don't have enough. There's nothing we can charge. And we went back and said, we'd like to talk to you again. And luckily the, the survivor said, okay. And the detective was like, I was able to do it in a whole trauma informed way. I was able to ask questions that I never would have thought to ask. Like, is there anything that you'll never forget? And the survivor was able to talk about the smells in the area, which were unique. And the detective was like, I know where this location is based on how they're describing you know, the odor and some of these other things. And he was said, we were able to, after we did that, build a whole case, identify the perpetrator and actually get them charged just because we thought to go back and try the interview again. And I'm like, that's a home run. There's nothing more I need than that. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yay. Miracles happen. <laughs> well, I'm glad someone's teaching those skills because I, I'm, I'm sure that's not in the Academy. And, um, I know many cops that, again, develop it over time, but to get those skills and to be able to teach it, it is, again, invaluable. Well, and, and like I said, and for the police officer to say, you know what, I feel bad that I did this the wrong way. Let me go back and try again. I mean, all the credit in the world to that detective to say, I'm going to go back and try again. Yes, absolutely, because it is totally different how you interview a a person who was involved in like a murder case or a burglary case compared to a, sex, a sexual assault or child abuse case. It, it, the, the psychology in mental trauma is totally different. And I think that's where a lot more people need to understand that mental health is very important and how this is a permanent side effect 
of the trauma because it does rewire your brain to a certain extent. Absolutely. And I'm going to have you come talk to our uh, sentencing commission who establishes guidelines. Because as I told you in the beginning, in my jurisdiction, the mental health injury is not considered a permanent injury. And so for guideline purposes, they're only given a one point versus a two point as we're calculating it. And I have to tell you, when I talk to the majority of my sexual assault or child abuse victims, they would much rather say I'd have, I'd much rather have a permanent scar on the outside of my arm than to have, you know, the internal trauma and the PTSD and everything else I'll live with from the rest of my life from a forced sexual violation. Absolutely. I'll be there. It's just, I don't know about the child because she still um, doesn't feel comfortable talking about it, but she has anger issues. She's emotional PTSD. She's a bipolar depression, needs medication to go to sleep. I mean, I I could speak on what I see and what my insurance covers (laughs) to say the least. Because um, we didn't even get money from the victim's advocacy or anything of that nature. So we, we never got compensated. Everything was out of pocket. Oh, my goodness. So because I was going to say there should be services that are available at little to no cost for all survivors. We want survivors to know they should and could get help. There's never any shame in seeking outside assistance or help. We got a ton of great resources that are available. The internet, like you said, is wonderful. It's on us and uh, Enrape on campus have started a series on just their social media platform and their website of survivor stories. And survivors of sexual assault can go and post their stories and their successes and their struggles. And they can reach out and identify with other survivors because as you know, healing isn't a straight line, right? It's going to have ups. It's going to have downs. You're going to spin around in a circle and not even know where you are. And, and that's okay. You know, you, you can't compare yourself to anybody else or your healing to anybody else. And, and it's okay to be angry. I mean, you have every right to be angry. One of the things we've been seeing lately um, is that there's many more resources now, not just for the, for the, for the survivor, but their support system, the family, which is fantastic because um, it's not just the victim who suffers, it's everyone around them as well. And the one thing I want to put out there is we've seen some parents that want to brush it under the carpet because in a, I believe in a way it seems like a failure on their part. And it's not. It is, the again, I keep going back to these habitual serial predators. The best way to be a parent in this case is to help your child heal and get them the resources they need. 100%. One of my favorite judges, how she would describe it is at sentencing, she would tell the abuser, your act is like throwing a pebble in the pond. You may think there's that initial big splash, which is the impact on the victim at the moment, but it creates ripples that go out for the entire length of the pond. And that's going to be the ripple on the family. And it's going to be the ripple on schooling or the ripple on jobs and the ripple, you know, that goes on and on and on that that initial predator will never know or completely understand how dramatically their actions have changed the lives of the survivor and everyone else around them. 
Yes, and also the importance of getting help as a survivor. There is no shame on that to reach out, get mental health, because when we actually went through all the um, the healing and therapy, we kind of put the pieces together that um, her biological father was also a sexual assault, you know, child abuse from his father, because it was his father who did it to um, our daughter. And that's why. And then the other sign was that his brother never allowed his own daughter alone with his parents, which I thought it was odd. But here I was trying to prove like, oh, no, I'm a good like, you know, parent and let them spend time with the grandparents, not knowing, you know, why there was the distress of leaving the child alone with your own biological parents. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's important for the parents and the family members to get counseling too, because I don't care what parent you are. If this happens to your child, you're going to feel responsibility. You're going to have some guilt. You're going to have anger. You're going to have your own secondary trauma because of it. And, you know, I think it's important for parents or caregivers, whoever they are, whoever is the support system for the child to make sure they're getting care and healing as well. Because the, the caregiver is going to need to have that healing so that they can be a better support system too for the child. Oh, 100% totally support that because I felt so alone because I didn't really have that support like from somebody else who was going through the same trauma as I was because it's, it's secondary trauma. It's like, am I a bad parent? Did I not see the signs? What, you know, um, because I've always been, you know, very, um, sex positive because, you know, of my, you know, I'm a bisexual swinger and I, you know, I was waiting for the right age to talk about sex to my child, which, you know, back then I was programmed, you know, the right age is about 12 to 13. That's when you start talking about, and <laughs> yes, yes. After the fact, I found out it was supposed to be much sooner teaching about consent at two. I mean, she, yep. she already knew the medical accurate body terms, you know, that, so that's what caught me off guard. It's like, okay, but she already knew vagina and vulva because when the state attorney's office was interviewing us and she kept, did they touch your butterfly? Did they touch your flower? And me and my okay, daughter no, looked no, at, no, no, no. <laughs> oh no, this is, yeah, this is what happened to us that we looked at each other and we're like, you mean vagina? And she just looked back and I'm like, yeah, she knows the body parts. Why did you start a conversation like that? That that's that was that my bothers me so much. I'm like I'm so upset that that would even happen. We we sit here and advocate. You know, you start consent and body autonomy at age two and three, and you start with making sure your children know the right body parts. Because here's the thing: if your child actually used the word butterfly and they told a teacher, "Oh, you know, cousin Johnny touched my butterfly." or my cookie or something, is that teacher necessarily gonna think there's something wrong with that? No, but if the child goes to their teacher or another trusted adult and says, cousin Johnny touched my vagina or cousin Johnny touched my penis, then we have another protection out there for the child and that's gonna get reported. It's so important to teach child the body parts. I'm really offended that as a professional in the criminal justice system, somebody would even start with butterfly or flower because we work so hard against that. Welcome to 2008 and state attorney's office. Now you can see my bitterness on uh, the legal system. Uh, and that's why I wanted you on the show to change my bitterness. 
Oh, that see that I'm so distraught by that. I can't even. Uh, but yeah, but you know what you were talking about. So for in your situation where you're talking about, you know, a grandparent, one of the things that we stress um, with no gray zone is the body autonomy at that two, three. And we say the perfect example is teaching your child, they get to decide who and when they want to hug. That's not sexual. You know, you're talking two or three, just teaching them body consent and body autonomy. And we're like, and you don't force your child to hug their grandparent if they don't want to, or, you know, to play a game of roughhouse if they don't want to, that your children can start learning at that age, that if they don't want somebody touching their body, it's okay to say no. And if they can start learning that at two or three, they're going to be much more vocal at six and seven. And when they are starting to date, they're going to be sitting here going, no, 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 I have the say in my body and you're going to respect my choices. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to raise kids who can immediately be identifying their rights to their own body. And it doesn't have to be sexual. It starts at just that, that young age of simple things. As we say all the time, my body, my choice. And the, the simple concepts of you get to decide how you want to hug somebody, if you want to hug somebody, and then grow up as a as a kid going all along the ways. And, and then obviously you get more and more involved, you know, I, I think we, we have, we've learned now eventually that you start talking to children about just sexual concept of children and how that's around age five, so that it's not this big mysterious thing that they don't talk about or because I think we have still such a Puritan kind of concept in society, right? Like we don't talk about it or you don't say the word penis, you know, you say no, no square or something like that. And we're like, it's another body part, right? You, you call a hand a hand, an arm an arm, a penis is a penis, a vagina is a vagina. Take away the shame from it. Take away the taboo about it. And our kids are going to be much more likely to tell us if something's going wrong. Absolutely. Giving them that empowerment to speak up and, you know, able to control themselves, you know, and their body and things. But do you see that lack of information is easy for predators, I guess, for sex trafficking? In regards oh, 100%. To 100%. I mean, so anybody who preys on children generally is already a master manipulator. When you bring in sex trafficking, which is a whole separate a construct of sexual abuse, especially when you're looking at minors, not only are they master manipulators in the sense of they're looking for somebody to prey on, but they're also looking at it as a business model. And so they're, they're going to go with who makes the best workforce for them, right? So they want to target who is the most vulnerable for them, who might have the least support system, so there's nobody for that child, that potential trafficking victim to go to, to say, does this seem right to you or to have a concern? It's why so many of our recovered children in sex trafficking rings have been in the foster system or have been runaways or have had a uh, habitual truancy problem or substance abuse problem because the traffickers know who's vulnerable how to manipulate those vulnerabilities and how to bring them into their stable and into their fold and under their control. 
to which point they're then going to gaslight them. They're going to, you know, act like they're omnipotent, that there's no way for the victims to truly escape or to even think that, you know, I depend on my trafficker now for my daily support. So traffickers are just the worst. Well, let me go ahead and go over to the subject of the law, because I know in the last even five years, there's been new laws, again, federal and state level, that have been made to prevent sex trafficking. There was the shutdown of Craigslist. Um, but some of them were, were, I guess, painted with a very wide stroke that seemed to go ahead and have been used to shut down any sex resources. Because um, the way I put it is, obviously, we'll say religion is a good thing, but a cult is a bad thing. Just like I think sex is a good thing and there's a great side to it. It's necessary for relationships. But no, sex abuse and sex trafficking is, is something that we need to go ahead and protect our children and our society against. Um, what is your opinion on that or, or, or laws that are kind of being used, not as they were intended, written, to do more harm than good? So I think that's that's a great point. I think part of what we need to understand is that the laws are always generally, I would say, two to five years behind technology. Okay. So technology evolves much faster than laws change. And so by the time we get a new law, the technology that law was written on has already advanced to some other law when we're talking about you know, web pages and trafficking or wire fraud and different things like that. So oftentimes it, it's a solution that's just coming a little late. And so it's, it's written broadly to try to capture where we know technology might be going or to try to head off some future problems. And, and sometimes you're right, it, it ends up overbroad. And sometimes, you know, we, we find out later we need to tweak it. And I think it's important for individuals to follow what laws are happening. I think it's important, especially for people who are invested in these types of topics to tune into their legislature. The great thing is state legislatures, unlike, you know, the federal legislatures really do get to hear from citizens. You can submit written testimony you can sign up and give oral testimony. We had in my jurisdiction this year, there was a bill that was being proposed with regard to ransomware and computer crimes. And there were a ton of people who signed up to be like, wait a second, this law is overbroad as it's written because what's going to happen is the people who are trying to stop ransomware will now be able to be charged criminally because of how it's written, because if they possess it to try to figure out all the ways to stop it, to fix it, to repair it, it they're now also in violation. And so <laughs> needed to hear from them to say, oh, wait, and they were actually able to help make the amendments to say outside of a research basis, outside of a valid, you know, law enforcement basis and, and work some of those things because again, you know, these laws are being written by legislatures who are elected from all of us. They come from all walks of life. It's not like they have a set legal background or anything else. And so I think one, it's important to pay attention to what laws are being passed. The other is 
when you notice something is overbroad or that somebody's been caught, to write your local legislature. We had a couple that we tweaked afterwards where we said, oh, wait, that's not right. And then of course, we're still working on other ones. Here we are. Um, I don't know, I think it's the 10th year we've been trying to repeal an automatic defense to rape if you're married in our state in 10 years and we still can't get that passed through our legislature. And apparently we haven't spread enough knowledge or offended enough people that there's an automatic defense to rape if you're married. Meaning if as a predator I'm married, that's an automatic defense? So, um, so I'm gonna just, use my husband. So my husband who's upstairs, if he raped me, he has an automatic defense as my spouse. Oh no. Oh yeah. 10 years we've been working on repealing that automatic defense. Oh the Lord. They don't that. have it is if it's done with a weapon or by like a uh, force, but otherwise, you know, if, if my husband, or if I wanted to take advantage of my husband, if I wanted to, you know, drug him up and, sexually assault him and film it or anything else, right? I have an automatic defense as his spouse. Wow. Wow. I know we joke the about The laws it, are well. not perfect. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's like, we say it jokingly with us because, you know, we have that, but just hearing that, that just like, oh my God. Now, now I'm just mortified. That's worse than the Texas laws. Well, I, I think the one thing this conversation has led me to believe is we both have a lot more work to do. Um, and perhaps getting us and our listeners a little more involved in the political side of it wouldn't hurt because there are still laws getting passed. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right, unless we write in and voice it and say, hey, as sex positive me, we're trying to teach uh, age appropriate sex education because parents don't know where to go with this. And stuff like social media is very scared of SESTA and FOSTA that we get grouped in with sex traffickers. We even had a hormone doctor have a hard time advertising his services, and he's advertising to the 50 and up crowd. But because it's sexual, it just gets pulled off and banned because, Censored. yeah, because it's, right. again, the law is so broad. I understand the reason why they're doing it. And thank you. I never thought of that before, that they're trying to write something for the future. But again, there needs to be that balance. Absolutely. And like I said, you know, we, we had to listen to all the, the experts to say, Hey guys, this, this law, it's got a good, a good intent behind it, but you need to tweak it this way and that way. And those people were able to get it tweaked the right way. And again, state legislature, you get much more of a voice as a citizen. And, and I think, you know, I have to admit myself until about seven years ago, I didn't pay that much attention to what my own state legislature was passing or not passing and realize I need to get a lot more involved and I need to submit testimony and I need to be willing to sign up at the state house and testify on the importance of legislation and, and get it done. Yeah, a lot of work to do, but it's like, it, it's come, it's come away since, you know, when we've gone through our little tragedy. And so it's good that that's happened. Um, but what advice do you give to someone that may need help? So I think the first advice is know it's okay to need help and know as a survivor, you have the right to take control back however you want to. And so maybe control for you is 
just making a Jane or a John Doe report at the hospital to make sure you get the proper medical treatment, you get the proper medication, and you are taken care of that way. Maybe that's the only control you want at that point in time, which is great. Maybe control is actually reaching out to law enforcement and making the report. And if that's the case, then I strongly suggest for survivors to also reach out to your victims' rights groups and organizations. It's in all 50 states. And it's important for survivors to know that they have rights as victims of crimes. There's also victims' rights attorneys who can enter in and help you go through the process yourself because we don't want anybody in your situation who this whole case was taken and done without you ever having a say or even knowing what was going on. That's not the proper way for it to be done. And we want survivors to know to get whatever healing you need. And healing is different for every single person. And it can be mental health treatment. Maybe it's, I'm getting a tattoo that makes me feel beautiful about my body that had been taken away from me. Maybe it's, I need to go um, and change my hair or I need to do this different. Whatever a survivor needs to do to feel comfortable in their own skin again is okay. And no matter how somebody looks at them or how somebody may be like, I, I had one case where the defense attorney tried to make an issue that my victim went and got her nails done and that he found in the text messages. And I'm like, and, and our point is my victim shouldn't go and try to make herself feel pretty again or comfortable in some way. And so I think part of it is to let survivors know healing's different for everybody. There's no right or wrong. Whatever helps you is on the right path. Now I say that with not talking addictions because that's gonna go down a whole nother path, but you know, mental health, helping yourself, building your support system, there's never any shame in getting that help. And if anybody is never sure about what resources they have, they can always reach out to us. We will find the appropriate resource in their area to connect them to. And then I, I would just say there are a few things I think as parents that are important. Uh, you know, just as you said, you know, you didn't know what was going on. You never saw anything that threw up a red flag for you. And, and that's that that happens all the time. Again, they're master manipulators. They know how to make sure a child doesn't say anything. And, and children want to listen to adults. So if they say, don't talk about it or you know, they're going to blame you. I even had one who was like, nobody will love you anymore if you tell anybody. And so this child just thought if they told somebody their mom wouldn't love them anymore. I mean, you want to talk about the mental trauma on that child when they finally said something, but it's to talk to your children early about what you said earlier. Strangers aren't the main danger, right? 90% of our sexual assaults of children are done by somebody known to the child. And so when we're having that good touch, bad touch conversation, it needs to be included by, and this can be by somebody you trust or somebody you love, and it doesn't make it right. And you're allowed to tell somebody and you won't be in trouble. And we need to have that other conversation. We're so good at telling our kids about stranger danger. I mean, I can remember, right? I knew what to yell in a store if a stranger approached me. I knew how to act. 
I had a meeting point with my parents. If I was somewhere like we had stranger danger down, but nobody ever talked to me about it. It could be a loved one or my favorite coach or somebody who could be doing that. And I, and I think we need to recognize that we need to have that conversation because I think having podcasts and work groups like sex positive me, where you can talk about sex in a positive way, because it is healthy. And there are many things that are wonderful that come from it. Being able to talk about it one in a healthy way is great. Being able to normalize sex is great so that it's not a taboo topic. So people can talk to us, but then being able to say, here's how it can be used in a wrong way. Fantastic. Thank you for this interview and conversation. Uh, I mean, I think I learned a lot more now. Well, let me ask you, where can people reach you if they want to reach out? So you can reach us on social media. It's no gray zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter. It's no gray zone on Facebook. And you can find us on our, our webpage is rightresponseconsulting.com. And regular email is just rrc at rightresponseconsulting.com. Well, Catherine, thank you very much for your time. And again, we've been going through this and we're happy to get an update and even learn even more about it so we can teach others. Well, thank you. I appreciate so much what you guys do. I think every time we have the conversation, we are getting closer and closer and closer to hopefully I can be put out of work one day. Not many people want want the future to have their job end, but I understand. Yes, no, we totally understand <laughs> and respect that, but we're still forever grateful that you are available and doing this work. Thank you so very much for being on the show. Thank you. You guys have a wonderful day. Hey, John, I want to get a new toy. Okay, so let's go to Fair Villa. But I don't want to waste time trying to find out what goes with what. Well, there's Fair Villa University and their staff is very well educated and helpful. Okay. But how about if I just want to go to a party instead? Then go to their website, because on their calendar, they list all their events. But I don't want to spend a lot of money. Have you heard of their loyalty program? Oh yeah, that thing on my keychain that makes everyone blush every time they see it. That's the one. Let's go. Well, they have over five locations in Central Florida. Which one do you want to go to? Fair, Fair Villa. Villa. For, For pleasure, fun, and, and fantasy. fantasy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Sex Positive Me. If you like our content, please like, subscribe, and review us. You can find us on social media platforms at Sex Positive Me or on our website at sexpositiveme.com. You can also reach me on all social media platforms as Miss Angelique Luna. And you can find me at John C. Luna. And if you liked content like this and want some more, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.